Okay, good morning, everybody. This is Danielle Karapkin uh, speaking to you on the webyeshiva.org platform. Um, we are studying the course Morin of Uchim, Maimonides' Guide for the Perplexed. Uh, we are uh, in the second section, and we are embarking on essay number one. Uh, we uh, covered over the last two weeks, we did the introduction to the Morin of Uchim, where the Rambam had set forth for us 26 premises, philosophical premises that he uh, feels are axiomatic uh, and have already been proven, all except, of course, the 26th premise, uh, which is something that he's going to accept for now in order to use to prove that which he sets out to prove in just a moment. However, the 26th premise that the universe is eternal and has always existed is something that he will later challenge and develop a possible counter to that. Now, uh, the reason why the Rambam felt it was so important to present to us these 26 premises is because these axiomatic truths in the Rambam's world uh, are therefore now going to be used to prove the truths about God. And the three basic truths about God that the Rambam feels that every human being needs to know is that God, A, exists, God is a unitary, that is, he is one and not more than one, and that God is incorporeal, that God is not in any way associated with a body or any kind of physicality. Uh, God is completely immaterial. So he's going to set out to prove these ideas uh, using the 26 Aristotelian premises that he gave us in the introduction. You may ask yourself the question, why is this so important for the Rambam to prove? Now, the word proof um, is, is a, a very vague word, and it's been used in different ways in different contexts. But when we use it when studying medieval philosophy, essentially what it means is I give you an equation almost it's almost like a mathematical equation and that as long as i can line up all of the values from one side onto the other side of the equation the equation is sound um, philosophical logic of the medieval world especially when proving um, concepts theological proofs was viewed to be uh, quite mathematical in this sense as well i've set forth to prove some axiomatic premises and now I can use those premises to prove uh, X, Y, or Z. And as long as the, uh, the values on one side equal to the, other, the values on the other side of the equation, I have successfully uh, proven my idea. The Rambam feels that believing in God or, or trying to um, uh, have God in one's life uh, based on faith alone or based on tradition alone is insufficient. The Rambam, as we've pointed out a number of times in the past, is very much a believer that the intellect is the most important way of reaching an understanding and a conjunction with, a devekut with the Almighty. And if we don't use our minds to actually prove these things to ourselves, then there is something faulty in our connection with God. And ultimately, the key to immortality is a perfect, or as perfect as possible, as humanly possible, understanding of God 
and God's universe and the way that he interacts with us. And that's why this exercise is so important to the Rambam. Now, we've talked a little bit about this uh, throughout our discussion of the guide, how the Rambam's approach is not embraced by all Jewish thinkers, clearly not. Um, and many people would find this exercise of proving the truths of God using philosophical argumentation and philosophical logic as really being not very important and perhaps even somewhat counterproductive, which is what some great Jewish thinkers have suggested throughout Jewish history, both in the lifetime of the Rambam and long after the Rambam is, uh, is alive. But we are nevertheless going to present this. Um, th this the, the methodology that the Rambam employs is a methodology, again, of using logical proofs that is very much in vogue in his world, both not only in the Jewish world, but in the Muslim and Christian world as well. And uh, it, it therefore may seem to be somewhat disorienting and also disinteresting to the, the modern thinker. However, in order for us to be comprehensive and at least trying to get a cursory understanding of the guide, I do feel it's important. Now, the Rambam presents really what looks like seven separate arguments in proving different aspects of the truths of God in this chapter. We're going to cover the first three. We're going to look at the first proof most extensively, and we're going to try and condense the second and third arguments um, for the sake of brevity. Uh, if for today. So I'm going to share my screen with you and um, and actually just give you this outline that I think might be of help to you if uh, if I hope you find it of some of some help. So this handout, this text uh, can be downloaded uh, if you like from uh, Facebook. We have a Facebook group called Shiur in Morinavuchim. I encourage you to join it. Um, and that way you get uh, regular updates whenever we post something new on that, uh, on that Facebook group. And it's there downloadable as a PDF. And the other place where you can find it is on the yeshiva, the webyeshiva.org website in the course description for today's course, which is Morenavuchim, Section 2, Chapter 1, Part 1, Using Aristotelian Logic to Prove God's Existence, Unity, and Incorporeality. So Argument 1 is basing itself, really all of the Rambam's arguments are basing themselves on the 26 premises that were brought in the introduction. And if you'd like to review those 26 premises, you're invited to download the handout from, from last week when we presented all of them uh, uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a very clear list. Premise 25 taught that a mover is required to endow matter, which is potentiality with form thus endowing it with actuality. So you need a mover to create any object in the physical world that is made up of matter and form. What moves the mover? What causes this mover to move the matter and form of this world? There must be another mover and even a sequence of preceding movers. But this chain of movers cannot go on ad infinitum as proven with premise three of the 26 premises that there cannot be an infinite series of causes and effects, even among immaterial things. And so therefore, there must be, at some point, uh, a first mover, and that's where we're going to be headed. But it's not as simple as that. Now we have to go to point number two. Every movement of the bodies 
comprised of the four sublun sublunary elements is controlled by the movement of the body of the fifth element of the celestial sphere, which is a heavenly body. And to get our heads into this world once again, the Rambam maintains, using Aristotelian terminology, that there are four elements in this world. And these four elements come down into our world, merge with each other and merge with form to make up all of the things that exist in our world, both naturally occurring and man-made. So the rocks are made up of earth and they are made up of a form of a rock. Soil is made up of earth. Uh, animals are made up of fire and water and, uh, and air and an earth as well. And, uh, and all of these elements combine, but movement causes their combination and their constitution and merging with form to give uh, substance to everything that exists in our world. What causes that movement? Aristotle has, so to speak, proven that that movement starts in the heavens with a celestial sphere. Now, in reality, as we've pointed out a number of times, there are a series of celestial spheres using this uh, medieval worldview of astronomy. And what, what, but the Rambam, for simplicity's sake, talks only of one, one sphere. But really, it's multiple spheres that each, uh, the, the lowest most sphere directly affects all of the elements of our world. And that sphere, in turn, is moved by the spheres that are outside of it until we get to the outermost sphere. And it is a given that the celestial sphere moves perpetually, as was argued in premise number 26. And this is the premise that the Rambam says we're going to grant for the sake of argumentation, um, because we're going to need to demonstrate that at some point there must be something that exists eternally that moves everything. So. As an illustration, the flat stone that is going to seal a window, because in those days they didn't have, they didn't use glass to seal windows. They would use perhaps a square stone and they would stick it into a window if it was getting too windy or getting too cold. Now, you may move that stone with a stick because it may be on a hinge uh, on the wall. And uh, who moves the stick? The stick is moved by a hand. It almost sounds like chad gadja. And who moves the hand? It's moved by the tendons, which is moved by the muscles, which are controlled by the nerves, which are controlled by body heat, which is controlled by the soul, which is motivated. And what motivates the soul to decide to close the window? By the wind blowing through the open window. The wind is ultimately blown. And that's what causes this, the motion of the wind, which causes all of these kinds of reactions in this whole chain of movement in our world, it's caused by the fifth element residing in the celestial sphere that is in the heavens. So everything that is in motion, everything that is, that is a cause and effect in our world has its origin in the celestial realm. What moves the sphere? Because the, the uh, uh, assumption is that you have a constantly, perpetually, a moving sphere or a series of spheres that are that are responsible for causing the motions of our world. So it can be one of four types of movers. And this is where the Rambam gets a little bit more, even more technical. You can have uh, one of four are possible as far as what causes the spheres to move. 
A or one, it can be another heavenly body outside of it. So you can have one sphere that moves another sphere. And that ultimately is what um, Ptolemaic uh, science believed in those days that you had a series of concentric spheres. But if we're talking about, for argument's sake, only one sphere, then we have to consider what is the responsible for the motion of the body of spheres. Okay, so it could be another heavenly body. Two, it could be an immaterial entity separate from it. Three, it could be a force distributed throughout the sphere, which we talked about in the introduction, akin to heat that is distributed throughout a physical body. Or number four, it can be an indivisible force within the sphere, akin to the soul within man. So what is it that causes the movement of the heavenly sphere? So we have to eliminate, number one, the first possibility that there's another heavenly body that's moving the sphere. Why is that? Because even if we concede that the innermost sphere is bounded by other spheres which move it, there cannot be an infinite number of bodies as proven in premise two, which is there cannot be an infinite number of finite objects simultaneously. You cannot have an infinite number of spheres that each sphere moving the sphere lower than it until we get to our sublunar realm. That cannot be true. There has to be, the buck has to stop at some place because you cannot have an infinite number of bodies coexisting at the same time. So number one must be eliminated. We have to eliminate number three, that it is a force distributed throughout the celestial sphere that is causing motion. Why? Because the sphere is a finite body and therefore the force distributed within it must also be finite, as was demonstrated in premise 12 of the 26 premises, that every force that is distributed throughout a body is as finite as the body itself, which means if the body is cut in half, that force is cut in half. If the body ceases to exist, that force ceases to exist, like heat within, within a body. But the moving force must be able to move the world ad infinitum as has already been submitted in premise number 26, that the world has existed eternally. If one is an Aristotelian and believes in eternal existence, then there must be something that is not finite that is causing this motion, because anything that is infinite cannot exist perpetually. Okay, argument number six, or sort of point number six in this argument. We also have to eliminate the possibility that there's some kind of indivisible force within the sphere that causes its motion, because premise six taught that anything which moves other things is itself in motion. That motion of the internal force will be accidental or incidental to the movement of the sphere. That is, even though the force is causing the sphere to move, the force is also pulled along in motion by the movement of the sphere which it caused. Just to, just to illustrate, if I wish to walk um, and my soul is the force within me which impels me to walk, at some point my soul, which is inside my body, is being schlepped along by my body as well. So even though my soul is impelling my body to walk, but my soul is in motion by virtue of the fact that my body is in motion as well. So my, my soul is pulled along. And if there's a force internal, innate within the sphere, then that force is being pulled along as well. And we demonstrated in Aristotelian premise number eight that anything in accidental motion must eventually come to a stop. 
And that precludes number four from being the cause of perpetual motion. Just like we precluded number three because any force within a body must be finite, we must preclude possibility number four that there's some kind of soul within the sphere that causes it to move because anything that is in motion itself by dint of accident, by being pulled along by a body, must also at some point cease to move. That's why human beings are not in perpetual motion, because eventually the soul needs rest. And so if we're talking about a sphere which is in perpetual motion, its cause of motion must be coming from something other than itself. We must therefore conclude, now again, whether this proof is cogent uh, or not is something that we won't be able to go into really in any great depth because that would require um, probably uh, months, if you know, if not more, of study of Aristotelian logic. We must therefore, and, and, and of course, the relationship between Aristotelian mathematics and science to today's mathematics and science is something, you know, the, 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 they are worlds apart. Let's just put it that way. So therefore, you, the Rambam is basically using the logic and science of his time to prove that there's something outside of the celestial sphere which causes its perpetual motion. We must therefore conclude that the mover of the sphere is number two, the possibility number two, which is an immaterial entity separate from the sphere itself. It follows that this mover is not in movement itself and is not in any way part of the moved sphere. It is also not subject to any division or change. And why is that? Because anything which itself is not in motion um, is, and, and is immaterial is not subject to division or change. This entity is God, what Aristotelians call the first cause or the first mover or the prime mover. Okay, so, so that's, that, that's, but we're still up to number seven in our, in our arguments. There's, uh, uh, there, there are 10 points that the Rambam really makes in this preliminary argument. And, uh, and I'm really trying, I'm trying to simplify it as much as possible. Number eight, this mover must be unitary, since as we demonstrated in premise 16, a thing which is not a body cannot be perceived in terms of quantity, that is more than one, unless it is a force within a body, in which case its multiplicity is linked to the multiplicity of the body, or if it is part of a series of causes and effects. So again, going back to premise to the premises of the introduction, premise 16 says that anything that is immaterial cannot be divisible. And so therefore, if there is this immaterial uh, force which moves the sphere, it must be unitary as well. Number nine, furthermore, since this mover is motionless, it is timeless and exists outside of time as proven in premise 15, that without motion, time does not exist. So therefore, number 10, which brings us to the, the final point of this argument, this argument has thus proven that A, the sphere cannot move itself in eternal motion, but is moved by an external entity. B, the first mover is bodily, bodiless and incorporeal. And number C, the first mover is unitary and unchangeable, existing outside of time. So that's the sort of the structure of the first argument that the Rambam provides. As I mentioned, we've spent the most amount of time 
and space to this argument because the Rambam spends a, a really large chunk of this chapter on this. And we're going to spend less time on the subsequent six arguments. Argument number two goes like this. Any, it's a very interesting uh, logical exercise. The, the argument goes like this. Any compound structure, we'll call it AB, because it's a compound structure which is comprised of two things, A and B mixed together, is made up of by combining A and B. If A can exist independently of AB, then B can also exist independently of AB. For example, this is the example that the Rambam gives. There's a, 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 there's a certain elixir that exists in the medieval world that is called oxymel. And oxymel is a mixture of honey and vinegar. It was used as an expectorant. It was used for medicinal purposes. They believed if you mixed honey and vinegar together and you drank it, it would keep, it would keep you healthy. Now, the argument goes like this. If honey can exist independently of oxymel, then so can vinegar. Meaning if A can be independent of AB, then B can, in, can be independent of AB as well. That seems reasonable. It seems logical. Number two, when viewing a chain of movers and moved bodies, there must ultimately exist an entity which is itself moved but does not move anything else. In other words, if I have a series of, of spheres or things that are in motion, everything that is in motion is moved. It must have a mover. But there must be in this series the last thing which is being moved, which is itself not moving anything else. So this would be the last moving entity in a chain of movers and moved. All the intermediary movers, which are also moved, can be classified as compounds, A, B. So I have, let's say, an intermediary sphere within the heavens. That intermediary sphere I would call A, B. Why? Because it has two aspects to it. It is both in motion itself and it is moved by something else, meaning that, um, so, so therefore, it is, since there exists a B, a moved body, independent of being A, independent of being a mover, there must also exist a mover which is not a moved body. So the argument being as follows. If at the end of this series of spheres, there is a body that itself is moved, but is not moving other things, meaning that it's, it's, uh, it, is, uh, it is B independent of A, it's moved itself, but is not moving other things, then there must also exist within this series something that is a mover, but is itself not moved. Because if B can exist independently of A, then A must also be able to exist independently of B. That's the logic behind this argumentation. Uh, whether this comes from Aristotle himself or uh, Alexander of Aphrodisius is something that's discussed in the footnotes of the Pion's edition. But the bottom line is that this entity is God. And because God does not move, he also cannot be subject to division, meaning that he is unitary. He is also incorporeal, and he is also not subject to time. So therefore, that's argument number two, that if you have in a series something that is moved and does not move others, then at the beginning of the series, there must be the opposite of that, which is something that itself is not moved, but does move others. Okay, and argument number three, and this is what we'll finish with for today, 
that our senses tell us that existent things in our purview are subject to generation and corruption. But there must also exist something that is not subject to corruption, because if that were not the case, nothing would continue to exist, since anything subject to corruption will eventually cease to exist. The premise basically goes like this. If all trees eventually die, then there must be something that is, that is eternal, that is responsible for the constant regeneration of trees. Um, this is, again, a bit of a foreign way of thinking about reality, but it is nonetheless the argument that the Rambam wishes to employ. He says this is based on the commentaries of Aristotle. There must therefore exist an existence who is eternal and is not subject to corruption. Because if everything is eventually just going to die, then, then at some point everything will die and there's not something that's, there's no engine to continue perpetuating all of existence. Everything will eventually die and therefore all of existence will eventually fade out. There must therefore be some kind of eternal entity which gives rise to constant regeneration. And therefore, and just quoting the text itself, there is an existence that is necessary of existence and is so necessarily with respect to its own essence and that this existence has no cause for its existence and has no compound makeup in itself and for this reason is neither a body or a force within a body. And we refer you back to premises 19, 20, and 21, which is really what the, it forms the basis of this conclusion um, that this there must be at some starting point that there must be some necessary existent being. Remember the Rambam had told us that according to Aristotle, there are two different categories of existent beings. You can, you can either be a possible or contingent existence, or you can be a necessary existence. And the Rambam had concluded that all of, of existence is contingent, there, but there is one necessary existent being. And that unitary necessary existent being is neither a body or a force within a body, because anything which is a body is subject to corruption and breakdown, which means it's contingent, means it's only possible, but it's also possible for it to cease to exist. But if you have a necessary being, it means it cannot be made of any material, cannot be a body, and therefore uh, it's we have the conclusion that this existent is God, he must be unitary, since there can only be one necessary existent being, since anything which is necessary is also by definition absolutely simple and perfect, leaving nothing outside of itself to associate with it. And so that's argument number three. It's the argument of there being only one necessary existent, and that is what we call God. So that concludes our first, the first half of chapter number one of section two. Now I submit to you that this chapter is highly technical and therefore if you find yourself being very confused by it, I would recommend downloading the, uh, the handout and we'll have a second handout for next week. And I want to reassure you that um, the Rambam's su subsequent chapters are not as technical as what we've just studied today. So please do not be daunted by this very technical Aristotelian logic that we've studied today. 
it will become much more comprehensible as we go along in the chapter. This is sort of the groundwork, the grunt work that has to be done in order for us to get to the more subsequent discussions that are going to be a little bit more relatable to our uh, conventional way of thinking about things and applying uh, ideas that we find a little bit more relatable to our own world. Okay, so I, with that, I wish you a good day, everyone, and a good week, and Bezrat Hashem, we'll see you next time.